Pop Culture Affidavit presents 80 Years of DC Comics, Episode 13, Fantasy. Hello and welcome to episode 13 of the podcast miniseries Pop Culture Affidavit Presents 80 Years of DC Comics, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries, and the purpose of this podcast miniseries is to spotlight genres that DC Comics has published in its 80-year history that are outside of their normal superhero stories as well as stories that don't usually wind up on a typical top 10 list. This time around, I'm going to be taking a look at three stories in the fantasy genre, a genre that has been a part of DC's history for quite a long time, often crossing over in some regard with its superhero comics, although the three stories I have don't have any superheroes in them. Before I get to them, however, I do have an email. I have several emails, actually, but I'm going to be spacing them out over the next couple of episodes so that I can spread them out a little bit. This one is from Chris Franklin, who, along with his wife Cindy, is host of the Supermates podcast. His topic is the licensed comics episode, and he reads, and he writes, Hey Tom, great episode on DC's licensed comics. I was aware of the Dale Evans comic, but I always found it weird that DC had Dale's license and Dale had Roy Rogers, since they were pretty much a package deal as far as I know. I guess it's kind of like when DC had Star Trek in The Next Generation and Malibu had Deep Space Nine. The Hot Wheels comic was actually based on a Hanna-Barbera cartoon series, which began in 1969, the same year as the original Scooby-Doo, Where Are You? In fact, the character of Dexter was voiced by Casey Kasem, using the exact same voice he used for Shaggy, and you thought him and Robin sounded alike. Alex Toth provided the character design, so he was a natural for the DC comic. This show actually caused some legislation to be enacted, banning half-hour commercials. In fact, the words... In other words, kids' shows based on toys. The band stuck until the early 80s, and that's when the onslaught of all of our great childhood cartoons like He-Man, G.I. Joe, and Transformers began. 
Uh, I'm going to break in here and say that thanks for this information. Uh, I knew that at some point the government had enacted legislation to regulate the contents of cartoons, but it was before my time, so to speak. Uh, the 1980s was like this glory decade of cartoons. At least it seems that way because of the sheer number of cartoons and toy lines that were not only produced but were successful. You know, like the Monchichis. <laughs> Way up in the trees lived the Monchichis. <laughs> they loved to laugh and play, had a happy, happy day. <laughs> a Monchichi means happiness. Oh, oh. But the grumpkins very mean to the Monchichis. Okay, back to Crystal's email. V was such a huge cultural event on the schoolyard at the time. My older sister was really into it, and I think that's why my parents let me watch it since she was. But it was a bit scary and dark for my young mind to wrap my to wrap around. But I loved it. Somehow, by the time the series came on, I couldn't be bothered, and I never picked up the comic. Go figure. Fickle kids, I guess. Love the segment with you and your son reading Scooby-Doo Team-Up. My daughter is a subscription to this, and every month I do dramatic reading for her, although now she can read it to me. It's a whole lot of fun, and you, I, as you can tell by your reading. The writers sneak in some gags that only adults could pick up on. Yeah, Chris, I'm going to break in here again. That is a really fun comic. And by the way, did you know that the issue with Harley Quinn was going for like 30 bucks a while back it's because the harley quinn's going to be in the suicide squad movie obviously she's probably character and the comic doesn't have a huge print run um brett got his copy because it's on the pull list and i let him read it and he still has it and it's sitting in a box somewhere without a bag or a board and oh the poor hearts of the speculators as if they break listening to that anyway chris continues Always great to hear Stella and Andy. Looking forward to more from this series, Chris. Thank you for the email, Chris. I've got six more episodes planned. Um, I'd like to get them done before 2016, but I'm pretty sure this is going to bleed over into next year, especially since three of them may involve guest stars. But you'll definitely get more, and I'm glad you're liking it. I'll have more emails next episode, but right now I'm going to take a quick break, and I'll be back with a classic fantasy story from the 1950s. It's been a great ride. But all good things must come to an end. Our paths might not cross again in this lifetime. Take care, all of you. Bye, Grandpa. Goodbye, Mom. Bye, Master Roshi and Mr. Turtle. Goodbye, my friend. So long, everybody! We'll miss you. Live your lives to the fullest, and I'll see you again when you're done. Bye, friend. This adventure's been a great one. The end of the next dimension, a Dragon Ball Z podcast. Episode 50. DBZ Next Dimension. Lipson. Let's say goodbye.
My first story can be found in the greatest 1950 stories ever told. It was first published in The Brave and the Bold, number 3, which had a December 1955, January 1956 cover date. It was written by Roger Kaniger, with art by Joe Kubert. From out of the far Northland came startling tales of the Viking prince, and most startling of all, staggering the imagination by his audacity as the time of the fearless adventurer challenged an entire castle with the, the Hammer, Hammer of Thor. So the Viking Prince is a great Norse warrior who was mysteriously rescued from the sea by Captain Olaf. He is skilled and has great spirit. One night, Captain Olaf is kidnapped by a villain named Torvald while on his nightly stroll, and a notice left that says that Olaf will die unless John, the Viking Prince, surrenders within three days. Instead of giving in to the demands, the Viking Prince decides to set sail and rescue Olaf. He and his men climb up the side of the enemy's castle using grappling hooks and find Torvald's men awaiting them. He and his men fight their way through the men, but then find themselves outnumbered, escaping by jumping back into the sea. They head back to the village, and on the third day after Olaf disappeared, John pretends to find the Hammer of Thor, which according to legend, the God of Thunder once hurled into the sea. John tests out the hammer, and it is indeed the Hammer of Thor, something that one of Horvald, Thorvald's spies notices and reports back to him. Thorvald bargains with our hero to get Thor's hammer in exchange for Olaf, and the Viking prince gives it to him. But at the double cross, Thorvald launches the hammer at the Viking prince in an effort to kill him, but he somehow deflects it with his shield, something Thorvald is incredibly surprised at. John explains that because that hammer will only serve a master who is good and not evil. Another battle ensues, and it ends with Torvald grabbing the hammer out of John's hands and then bring, being struck by lightning. In the end, the Viking prince reflects on how he thinks Thor's hammer actually saved him. This is another one of those short stories collected in the greatest 50 stories ever told that I've grabbed for the series, and it's been a great fit, mainly because it's a nice snapshot of a bygone era and how the genre that I'm covering was presented in that bygone era. You know, I think prior to this, I tended to think of the 1950s as silly and goofy, mainly because quite a number of the Batman comics from the era are quite a bit on the silly side. But A, even the silly's 1950s stuff is really fun to read, and B, between stuff like this and stuff like Johnny Peril and King Faraday, the 50s were ripe with just great adventure stories. Kaniger gives us a tight story that has peril in swordplay as well as a hero with a sort of otherworldly gift for sword fighting. The action is drawn by Kubert, has done very well, and he and Kaniger pack a lot into these eight pages. I think if I were a kid in the 50s, I'd love this because of how much fun it is. This has been collected one other time in the Viking Prince collection from back in 2010 that includes work from Kaniger and Kubert as well as Bob Haney. I haven't seen it myself, but if I'm, I might grab it if I do see it in a cheap trade bin somewhere. But I'll move on, and I'm going to move all the way into the 1980s and check out an adventure of Amethyst, Princess of Gem World. Okay, it's not She-Ra, but, well, I knew that's what you were probably thinking of when I mentioned Amethyst. Anyway, I am looking at a story called Duel in Dark Magic 
which is the 16-page insert preview that was featured in Legion of Superheroes number 298. Credits on this one are Dan Mishkin and Gary Cohn writers, Ernie Cologne artwork and letters, Tom Zieko colors, Karen Berger and Dave Manick editors. On a mystical world called Gem World, the tyrant known as Dark Opal schemes to obtain all 12 gemstones that will bring him enormous power. He has 11 of them. The Dark Opal was given to him at birth, and then he got 10 more, and he wants that 12th one, the Amethyst. The owner of that stone is Princess Amethyst, and we see her and her companion Granch make her way through the bogs and the forests of Gem World, while Dark Opal watches her and then sends her a few threats. She defeats them with magic, and the two of them make their way to Dark Opal's lair, and they confront him. Meanwhile, in a laboratory deep inside Castle Opal, Lord Sardonyx has a blacksmith work on a special armor. Putting it into a fiery forge apparently releases some sort of chaos and dark energy. Opal fights Amethyst, who grabs some of the mystical liquid in his lair and leaves the castle with Granch. Opal then heads to Sardonyx's lab and sees what's going on. He manages to stop whatever it is by grabbing the opal from the armor as it's his birthstone and he's still able to command it. Meanwhile, outside, Amethyst and Granch continue to flee but then are set upon by a three-headed dragon-like monster. She fights back and begins to fall, but then the portal opens and she changes form, landing in a suburban bedroom as her alter ego, 13-year-old Amy Winston. Amethyst is one of a number of sword and sorcery books that DC published during the 1970s and 1980s, and it wound up having a marginally successful run after this short preview story. First, there was a 12-issue miniseries, and then an ongoing, which lasted 16 issues, plus a special that wrapped up everything. And then there was a four-issue miniseries in 1987 that reestablished her in the post-crisis DC universe and tied her backstory into Legion of Superheroes. She's kicking around in the New 52, uh, having been part of the Sword of Sorcery book, um, some other magic-related stories, and she shows up for quite a bit of Future's End as well, from what I can remember. For years, the only issue I had of anything related to Amethyst was issue number 13 of her ongoing series, which is, I'm pretty sure is the only issue quite a number of people actually own because it's a Crisis on Infinite Earths crossover. In issue 11 of Crisis, Amethyst goes blind fighting shadow demons, and Dr. Fate rescues her and takes her back to Gem World, which is where the issue of Amethyst uh, that crosses over picks up. But a few months ago, I was fishing through the cheap trade bins at my LCS and found the Showcase Presents collection of Amethyst Princess of Gem World. This collects the Legion of Superheroes preview issue, as well as the miniseries, and the first 11 issues of the ongoing. Kind of wish there was a second volume, just because... I've had to track down what's left of the remaining comics, and they're not the easiest to find. Uh, I found a few more issues of the ongoing. I've got one of the 87 mini. I've read up to issue 15 of uh, of Amethyst, so I need the special, another issue, and the rest of the 87 mini series. This preview is a great introduction to the character, though. It shows her clearly in action against her main villain, who is Dark Opal. It establishes the whole concept of Gem World very well, or at least enough of it to get us intrigued as to what the whole central conflict within Gem World is. Plus, there's a great twist at the end revealing who Amethyst really is, kind of like a Detective Comics 27 sort of thing. After all, since there's going to be a miniseries that follows this, there's no need to show her origin, deal with her secret identity. We can see all of that in the miniseries that will follow. 
So yeah, we get a nice fight, some monsters, and it's what we're given, and it's pretty solid. The artwork's great too. Uh, I have it in black and white, not in color, but even in black and white, it looks absolutely gorgeous. Ernie Cologne has a good handle on fantasy-type characters and sword and sorcery action. The quality of the character remained pretty consistent beyond this preview too. That miniseries is well-written, while the ongoing meanders a little, especially around the time of that Crisis crossover, it's worth tracking down, especially that Showcase Edition. I'm going to take a quick break, but when I get back, we'll be in the 90s with a story from one of the premier DC fantasy series of all time. Stick around. Calabac, Desaad, it is I, Darkseid. I command you to listen to the Who's Who podcast. Uncover the powers and weaknesses of the Super Friends so that I may destroy them. Aquaman and Superman, Animal Man and Plastic Man, Firestorm and Nuclear Man, Batman and Hawkman, 2D Man and Hour Man. Who are all these people, man? They're all part of the DC. Who's who? Ultra Boy and Booster Gold, Lightning Lass and Hippolyta, Phantom Stranger, District and Arisia and Woozy Winks. Hey, hey, hey. What? What about that one guy? What guy? Mr. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick, Mr. Mitzelfuzzle? Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him. He's also part of the DC Who's Who. Who's Who, the definitive podcast of the DC Universe. Available monthly at Aquaman Trine, Firestorm Fan, and on iTunes and Stitcher as part of the Fire and Water podcast. Since the late 1980s, there have been a number of titles that DC published that you could file under, quote, fantasy, 
While I don't know if you could exclusively put this next title under fantasy, it certainly was a game changer. The book is Sandman, which was Neil Gaiman's 75-issue masterpiece comic book series about Morpheus, Lord of Dreams, and his family, The Endless. It's ripe for his own podcast, to be completely honest, and if someone knows a good one, please let me know and I'll share it. While I was collecting comics as Sandman was coming out, I didn't read the series until about 2001 or so, when a friend of mine lent me all the collected editions. I was familiar with the character and had already owned a copy of the spin-off miniseries, Death, The High Cost of Living, but was never interested in reading the series back in the late 1990s. Looking back, I don't think I would have understood it very much when I was a teenager anyway. I don't know if it was a maturity thing or sophistication thing or if I just simply didn't have the mindset for it since I was still buying stuff like the Homage Studios swimsuit special from Image. Which, yeah, I know how that sounds. It's all in the past anyway. And I did read Sandman. Moreover, thankfully, it's still in print, so if I ever wanted to go back... I could find it very easily. I think my local library has copies of all of the the trades or hardcovers, so I might do a complete re- reread of Sandman somewhere down the line. I'm going to be taking a look at a single issue of Sandman this time around, and that one is Sandman number 19. This came out on July 31st, 1990, and it is a September 1990 cover date. The cover, as they all were, was done by Dave McKean. And our credits are Neil Gaiman writer, Charles Vess artist, Todd Klein letterer, Steve Olaf colorist, Karen Berger was your editor. Oh wait, there's one more thing. There's one more writing credit. And that's the co-writer on the book. It's William Shakespeare. For the title of this story is A Midsummer Night's Dream. June 23rd, 1593, which is, by the way, exactly 384 years before I was born. Shakespeare and his acting troupe, which includes his son Hamnet, make their way through the English countryside. Hamnet wants to know how long it will be until they get to an inn, which is where he assumes they will be performing. Shakespeare says they won't be going to an inn. Hamnet wants to know where they'll be performing the play, and then his father tells him he'll know when he finds out. One of the actors makes a suggestion about changing some lines in the new play, and Shakespeare shoots that idea down, telling him to recite the lines as written. Hamnet then spots a man up ahead. Shakespeare tells everyone to stop moving, tells Hamnet to go sit with the other boys, and goes to greet the man who is standing on a hill. We then see that man that they have spotted is Morpheus, the patron for this particular play. Shakespeare says that he's holding up his part of the bargain, which involved writing this play and coming to the hill, which he finds odd as a theater venue. Morpheus tells him that Wendell's Mound was a theater long before humans came to England. Richard Burbage, one of the actors, comes to see Shakespeare and sees Morpheus, who says that he is the patron of the play and must act well. Burbage tells him he's always good. Burbage wonders why the play is going to be done on the green, and Shakespeare says that's where they're going to perform, and it's time to get everyone ready. The company begins getting into costume, with some of them grousing about where they have to perform. Shakespeare asks where the audience is, and with that, Morpheus orders Wendell to open the portal on his mound, and through it walks a host of fairies, sprites, and other worldly creatures. The two leading the way are Oberon and Titania, king and queen of the fairies, and among them also is the hobgoblin, Robin Goodfellow, who is not as nice as the king and queen. The audience assembles, the actors take their places, and the play, A Midsummer Night's Dream, begins. 
Members of the audience make comments to Morpheus and one another about what's going on, while backstage at least one of the actors is a little nervous about the makeup of the audience. Shakespeare calms down and sends him back out. Robin, good fellow, the actual one, not the character in the play, says he wants to make sport of the humans and Oberon orders him not to, although he does say, I have forgotten me these centuries in fairy that rare creatures mortals could be, and what rare fun. The play continues. Titania tells Dream that she's familiar with the story of the play and asks Dream what his motives are. He says he'll tell her later, and after a few more lines she asks about Shakespeare's son Hamnet, calling him a beautiful child and requesting to meet him. Morpheus says she'll meet him during the intermission, and she says it's odd for him to mingle among mortals the way he is. Dream says that he and Shakespeare came to an agreement four years prior, and then in turn the bard would write two plays for him, this being the first. Titania says, so we have four lovers headed for the wood. We have clowns, who be actors, and actors portraying me and my rural consult. In the old tale, there was a love potion that left the goddess running with an ass. And indeed, that is what happens. The play continues, and backstage, one of the actors asks Hamnet if he's proud of his father. Hamnet laments that he doesn't have the best relationship with his father lately. Will is very distant. Hamnet says he seems less real to his father than any of the characters in his plays. And even says that his sister jokes that if he died, Shakespeare would write a play about it. Hamnet. The actor says he should be proud, and Hamnet says all that matters to him, all that matters is the stories. The play winds towards its intermission, and during the intermission, Titania and Oberon go visit Shakespeare, complimenting his work, while Robin Goodfellow looks over the shoulder of the actor playing Robin Goodfellow. He puts the actor to sleep and takes over the role, saying... You play me more well, mortal, but I have played me for time out of mind, and I do Robin Goodfellow better than anyone. Richard Burbage, the actor from earlier, approaches Oberon regarding payment for their services as actors, and Oberon gives him a full purse of gold. Morpheus talks to Shakespeare, says that he's satisfied, and also mentioned that one of Shakespeare's competitors, Marlowe, is dead. So we get the sense that part of the bargain that Shakespeare made for us was for success and fortune. Meanwhile, Titania tells Hamnet all about what the land of the fairies is like. The play resumes. While watching, Oberon, Titania, and Dream have a conversation about how this is the last time the fairies will visit this realm. Morpheus says he regrets it, but they say that the land of fairies is always open to him. Robin Goodfellow plays the puck, and as the play winds towards its conclusion, Morpheus wonders if he's done the right thing. He says that Shakespeare will become known as a result of all this, but he doesn't understand the price of his bargain, which is something mortals rarely do, because they only see the prize. Titania only says, Oh, it's a wonderful place, Shaper, most enchanting and fine, clearly having not paid attention to any of his concerns. A few moments later, he explains the reason behind the play, which is that since the fairies have entertained him so much while he was on Earth, he wanted the humans to remember them forever, which is why they're a central part of the play. Oberon thanks him for the thought, but points out that the events aren't true. Oh, but it is true, replies Morpheus. Things need not have happened to be true. Tales and dreams are the shadow truths that will endure when mere facts are in dust and ashes and forgot. The play ends with the fairies. The fairies get ready to leave. It's only right before the gate opens that Shakespeare realizes that his actor Cowley is not behind the mask of Puck. Robin Goodfellow takes off his mask and recites the final soliloquy of the play, not to the gathered audience, but to us, the readers. 
If we shadows have offended, thing but this and all is mended, that you have but slumbered here while these visions did appear. And this weak and idle theme no more yearling than a dream. Gentiles, do not reprehend. If you pardon, we will mend. And I, as I am an honest puck, if we have unearned luck, no, not escape the serpent's tongue, we will make amends ere long, else the pucker liar call. So good night unto you all. Give me your hands if we be friends, and Robin will restore amends. The next morning, Shakespeare and his company wake up in the field. Richard Burbage, upon discovering that the purse he thought was filled with gold, was filled with yellow leaves, says that they have been cheated, but Shakespeare says they haven't, and the play wasn't a dream. Hamnet approaches and tells his father of a strange dream he had, but Shakespeare is dismissive, telling him that they are foolish fancies that he must practice his handwriting today. He then gathers the company of actors and they move on to their next venue. We then have a panel that says, Hamnet Shakespeare died in 1596, age 11. Robin Goodfellow's present whereabouts are unknown. So the other day I had the fortune of going to see a performance of A Midsummer Night's Dream with my 10 advanced English class at the American Shakespeare Center in Stanton, Virginia, which is about an hour away from where I live in Charlottesville. I've seen plays there before. Uh, it's a great experience for seeing Shakespeare. The inside of the theater is a recreation of the globe, and the house lights stay on through the whole performance. It's not a play I've ever been really that fond with, but I have to say the performance I saw definitely changed my mind at least a little. It was absolutely hilarious, and not in that English teacher sort of way. My students were doubled over with laughter. Because the play, if you're not familiar with it, is basically about having sex in the woods. No, I'm not kidding. It's basically what happens. The two, couples, two couples from Athens head into the woods, one to escape the persecution of their love at the hands of Theseus. Uh, the other two follow and find them. And meanwhile, over in Titania, have Quint King and Queen of the Fairies pick her over an Indian boy that they had taken a liking to. And as a result, Oberon uses a love potion to make Titania fall in love with the first person she sees, which happens to be an actor by the name of Nick Bottom, who is at that, that point wearing the head of an ass. There's all sorts of crazy hijinks, and it ends with the couples being married. This is a comedy, after all, and it's and so it has to end at a wedding and not a funeral. And Oberon and Titania being in love once more. So what Dream has done here, Sandman has done here, is basically have Shakespeare write a play featuring members of the audience he's going to be performing the play for. Titania and Oprah on a front and center, Robin and Goodfellow, the trickster of the puck, is the one who sorts of gums up the works throughout the entire time the couples are in the woods, and some of the minor fairies that are servants of Titania are in the audience as well. In fact, they're shown to be stand-ins for the dumber people in the audience, always asking what's going on and getting confused. What amazes me is that Gaiman and Vass managed to do this and weave a wonderful tale in the, in the span of a single, normal-sized comic book issue. If I recall correctly, it's one of a series of stories that shows Morpheus throughout time in other lands. Tales that do have connections to the Brooks' present-day continuity, but it can be read completely on its own, which is what I did here. Gaiman as a Shakespeare is basically as someone who completed a Faustian bargain with Dream. Although Dream is in a sinister say the devil, which means that in return for a couple of plays that Dream wants him to write, Shakespeare will receive not only notoriety in that day, but a lasting legacy. In other words, Morpheus is responsible for William Shakespeare becoming William Shakespeare. But there's a darker side to this bargain which Dream hints at while watching the play, and I don't think I'm stretching here and saying that the darker side is that the life of Hamnet, 
Shakespeare's son. Gaiman doesn't exactly lay it on thick, but he's not subtle, especially since he spends a decent amount of the first part of the story focusing on Hamnet's relationship with his father, which is cold at best. William Shakespeare doesn't seem to care very much about her son, and at least considers his son to be someone who's in the way of getting things done when it comes to his work. The portrayal of the theater company is so accurate in many regards, uh, at least from what I've studied and taught during my time in college and then as an English teacher. I know there was a vagabond nature for troops such as Shakespeare's. They often played for patrons and other people who commissioned their work, and women's roles were often played by young, very often effeminate men. Gaiman and Vest have what looks like a teenage boy play one of the female roles. Plus, it's obviously the perfect play for Shakespeare to write for a dream, as, the, as is the other play he will write. And since he says that it will be at the end of his career, I'm assuming it's going to be The Tempest. Because uh, Midsummer Night's Dream is people encountering fantastical things at night, as if it were all a dream. Robin Goodfellow, or Puck, as sometimes he is called, is a great character in here as well. In fact, he's a bit of a trickster, as portrayed in the stage and film, and Stanley Tucci does him whimsically in the 1999 film version. But here, the, quote, real Robin Goodfellow is darker, much darker. In fact, the delivery of his soliloquy from the end of the play at the end of the issue is way more evil than is often read in the play. When you see the play perform, the speech is done toward the audience, and there's a sense of gratitude, but also also cleverness. Here, it's almost sinister. And it's absolutely great, especially since in the end, we see that he doesn't go back to the fairy kingdom, and he heads off into the world, possibly to cause chaos or mess with people. My students read this part as part of our study of A Midsummer Night's Dream, and they really enjoyed it. We talked about how there's apparently meta-commentary without it being too into itself, which makes sense. I don't know. Basically, it doesn't seem to be into how smart it is, which is often the case with other metafictional texts, especially comic books. And don't get me wrong, this is intelligent. But Gaiman trusts his audience and even cares for his audience, so he's not going to make it seem like you should feel stupid if you don't get it. They also love the way he weaved the performance of the play so well into it, as just as well as how the fairies and goblins in the audience has acted just as human as any humans would in a normal audience. I have to say our group completely agree with them, and Gaiman seems to be having a lot of fun with it. And then there's the art. I love the art, and they love the art. The artwork's absolutely gorgeous. Um, Charles Vest is absolutely perfect for this type of story. I had the chance to meet him at the Baltimore Comic Con this year and tell him how much we all we love this story. And I bought one of his coloring books, which has several images that are very much like what he draws in this issue. We talked a little bit about Shakespeare, actually, and it was a pleasant conversation. He's a really nice guy. And this is a great comic book story. It's a great fantasy piece. It's a little different from sword and sorcery tales. And it's a good gateway into Sandman, even if it doesn't really involve the larger story. I personally recommend picking it up if you get the chance. And if you get the chance to see A Midsummer Night's Dream or any of Shakespeare's plays performed live, you absolutely should. As for me, I'll be back next episode with a genre that does involve superheroes. And that's PSAs. That's right, kids. Superheroes are going to tell you to stay away from drugs. So until then, thanks for listening and take care.
Thank you for listening to 80 Years of DC Comics, a podcast miniseries presented by Pop Culture Affidavit and Two True Freaks. All comics talked about in this episode are copyright DC Comics, and since this podcast is intended for entertainment purposes and no money is made, no infringement is intended. You can find show notes and supplemental information on this episode at Pop Culture Affidavit, which is located at popcultureaffidavit.com. Interested in leaving feedback? You can email me at popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com or go to the Facebook group, which is facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit. Thanks for listening and come back next month for another look at the history of DC Comics. Believe in the good in man.